We're getting to that time in the retreat when um, one is becoming aware that we're moving slowly but inexorably to the ending of this particular formation of coming together and supporting each other in this space uh, so that we can cultivate the practice of awakening. And therefore, it's important to uh, begin to consider uh, how, um, you know, bringing and applying our interior practice to the external, to the exterior. I mean, ultimately, both are interconnected, of course, but there is this other dimension that, you know, when in the interviews... <laughs> People say, when I go back to the real world, and I think, well, maybe this is, <laughs> this could be the real world. <laughs> when we go back to that other world that uh, engages us and activates us and challenges us. Um, and in some ways, this uh, practice in our everyday lives and in, in the world is um, something of the acid test of our practice. It becomes the ground through which we have the opportunity to really integrate and um, bring the fullness of our practice uh, into an embodied response, uh, which is um, compassion and wisdom in activity, which, of course, was demonstrated very powerfully by the Buddha and many uh, saints and sages and many disciples of the Buddha and other great disciples throughout time and space and other great spiritual beings that uh, demonstrate the power of awakening in, uh, in life itself. So this is another kind of practice, same practice, but another kind of context. It's always the same practice in many ways. Coming back to this moment, how is it now? Steadying our attention with the reality of what is, noticing what is arising and uh, noticing and recognizing the refuge that we've been deepening, awareness and presence and connecting that uh, that through our mindful discernment and attention to uh, consider wise and compassionate response. When we first begin to practice, uh, for many of us, and it, it's really focused a lot. We focus, we're focused a lot about me, <laughs> me and uh, my uh, hopes for what this uh, spiritual life will will bring us. You know, so. Um, we we are very much uh, motivated um, by wanting to naturally and 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 very appropriately wanting to become more peaceful or more calm or more clear or more well or more powerful or confident. Um, these kinds of results are very much something that. Um, in the marketplace of spirituality, are are um, are marketed um, through many, you know, d different kinds of workshops and methods and teachers and teachings, you know, to aim for these kinds of um, outcomes, you know, reducing stress, becoming more functional. So a lot of a lot of the the contemporary spiritual practice, including much of Buddhism, is pitched at that level, um, yeah, and and naturally that's where we begin. Um, but there's a certain limitation because if we just orientate ourselves from that motivation, and then we start to run into difficulty and struggle, which we inevitably will. You know, the shadow issues of our own process, our own aversions and resentments and jealousies and lusts and desires and or just plain dukkha and we can't distract ourselves from it, then we can very easily, if we've just got that one level of motivation and that one context where um, framework that we're operating within, we'll very quickly uh, feel something's going wrong or it's not working 
But then we, you know, with some wisdom, we begin to understand actually we need to deepen our mot- motivation to realize this is a, a path that isn't about avoiding, but about opening to reality. And as soon as we do that, then we start to engage the very challenging and difficult and profound journey of suffering. Um, wherever and however that takes us and, and whatever the the context of the journey of suffering is, you know, whether the loss of loved ones or whether ill health or whether <coughs> psychological challenges or whether betrayal or, you know, there are so many different ways that uh, we become challenged by this very common experience that we all have. And so we can realize actually that this can be a catalyst rather than an enormous drag (laughs) and something going wrong. It actually um, becomes a catalyst for deepening our path and deepening our awakening and maturing us as human beings. And so as we start to actually understand that, and often that takes some time, and we might understand it intellectually, um, but usually we don't actually take a while to figure it out and accept that because we react so profoundly when uh, suffering or difficulty or challenges emerge. We you know, immediately think something's going wrong or I'm wrong or I'm failing or I've got to sort it out or get away. But you know, when we start to recognize that it's all part of the process, then we start to um, be able to deepen our capacity and deepen our motivation, which means we can stay with a path of awakening, although that path ultimately isn't going somewhere else in time and space. It's a path, it's a, it's a paradox, it is a path, but it's a path that's deepening us ever here. We can actually stay with that once we uh, orientate around the motivation that allows us to engage the fullness of our reality, including not only the happiness and the peace and the calm that we've been cultivating on the retreats, but also the disturbance. And generally speaking, that will uh, appear for us, and it will certainly appear for us day after tomorrow. (laughs) So, you know, one way or another. (laughs) But even so, we can still be very orientated um, in that focus and in that motivation about me and my practice. And um, once one of the senior disciples of Ajahn Chah, senior Western disciples, um, said to him, boy, you know, I, I never want to come back. Like, in, I never want to be reborn. I've had enough. It's all too difficult. It's all too painful. You know, I don't want to be a teenager again. <laughs> you know, go to school and all of that. And, you know, it's, uh, I want to get out of here. You know, I'm using the practice to get out of here. And Ajahn Chah turned to him and said, well, what about the rest of us? <laughs> what about everyone else, you know? Um, so, so then, you know, that's what we start to become aware of. <laughs> it's not just me. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a big world here and there's many, many different beings and many situations. And, you know, as much as we start to contemplate our own um, inner uh, dynamics of the mind and its own suffering and its own delusions and its own aversions and longings and and desires, we, we realize that those, that very mind is also manifesting through many different beings in all sorts of configurations. And some of those configurations are are very uh, are very um, constricted and uh, uh, contain a lot of suffering. So in this way, the the deeper motivation is said in the Buddhist practice is the one that can actually really endure through time and space. Is that when we start to orientate our motivation toward the um, energy and consideration of compassion, service and compassion. That it's not just about me and my journey, but it's also about being here for each other. And in that 
compassionate contemplation. There's a very beautiful template for that within Buddhism, which is the Bodhisattva template. This ideal of the one who who remains, or the one who waits, or the one who stays, the one who is patient, uh, while uh, for the process of others, not only just for being in a hurry oneself, which is counterintuitive for us because we just want to be first, you know. <laughs> when I was a nun, um, and when I trained as a nun, I used to, uh, you know, you have such little territory in the end for your ego that it gets very, you know, it starts to focus on your sitting patch. You know, that's your whole world. It's like your patch, you know. And you. <laughs> And I used to get very obsessed about claiming my sort of square meter, square yard of sitting patch, you know, and I get very upset if someone else was in it. So I used to devise these really complex strategies about how I could get to my place, you know, very unnun-like, you know, before everyone else <laughs> came along and, you know, and, and getting up earlier and earlier and staking it out. And then it would be so sort of stressful just to sort of hold my, my sort of castle in my on my mat and my my space you know like the best spot and i know it was madness you know i would you know as be rushing to grab my spot part of me would be going this is madness i go i know i know but i can't help it you know i'm still <laughs> going to go for it you know <laughs> you know and and so we that's where we start you know that's that's authentic you know it's it's a, that's the sort of the primitive place of <laughs> And I can still see that operating in me in many different situations. And, and you know, it's like that's, that's we're sort of like, that's how the self is, you know. It's sort of wired for self-survival. So it is a practice to keep opening. You know, sometimes things will crash into our lives that force us into compassion. You know, that, that something you know, like death will be one of them. You don't notice that when either we're beautifully read Last night by Sharada, so, uh, her friend was coming close to death. How much it was opening him into this incredible beauty and compassion. You know, so sometimes it, things that happen that really tear us open and tear down that self-survival impulse. And it's so sweet when that happens. It's so beautiful because it, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing like that sweetness actually to realize what a, what a joy it is to also be able to uh, be here uh, for someone else or to be opened in that way. I remember once when I was uh, traveling um, as a younger person, I spent uh, some time in India um, in various ashrams and meditation centers. And I, I used to do a lot, a lot of samadhi practice. And I got very, very sensitive and then go out into the the madness of the crazy like uh, marketplace of India, which is you know um, pretty intense. Uh, one of the things that I've always found very difficult was uh, the people begging, um, and because you know as a Westerner I'd be kind of like a strobe light going, you know, like walk down and like everyone would be hit, hitting on me for for uh, for 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 you know some rupees or something. So I used to have this stack of one rupee notes that I would sort of peel off, but it was really like a defense mechanism. It wasn't really generosity. It was just like, well, take one and go away. <laughs> and, I, and I wasn't very comfortable with this strategy, but it was sort of what I devised as a way to cope because I wasn't coping very well with a real overwhelm of poverty, you know, and, and not having that hidden away and, you know, bring up all sorts of strategies and guilt and... You know, so I'd sort of like brace myself for for being out of the meditation center. As I was more sensitive, I'd also be very uh, susceptible to feeling that you know everything around. And and um, one evening we were in uh, what was then Bombay, Mumbai, and uh, with a group of friends, and we were going to get a train uh, to somewhere. I don't know. Uh, some long train journey, and, and my friend said, well, we'll go to the marketplace and get the food, and you stay here with the bags. And so they took my purse because they were going to buy the food, so I contributed his m- my money. So all the rupees went with me, with them. And I was standing there in a very, very busy circle with all sorts of traffic, and I saw this young man with no legs on his wheelie board, 
coming and like it was like he's making a direct beeline towards me and I was like oh where's my rupees you know like keep away <laughs> I can't cope <laughs> and I started you know feel this uh the panic but because I've been doing so much meditation there was also this deeper just presence and so I just started to actually just open to this experience I had no strategies left so just opening and breathing and then he sort of came up and it's like you know, backsheesh, you know. and I was just looking at him, I was just looking in his eyes, and he's looking at me, and his sort of hand dropped down, and we just started to look at each other, and I couldn't give him anything, I couldn't, you know, um, create a defense against this just very raw experience, a very intimate experience that it started to become of us just as two beings, and as we started to look at each other, I really began to feel I'm, I'm not this Westerner, this is just like the outer cloak, and he's not that person in that, you know, really, um, de- 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 you know, disabled, deformed body. Um, and there was this love, you know, and he dropped, you know, he dropped out of his whole thing, I dropped out of my whole thing, and we just kind of just started staring at each other with this tremendous love. It was very beautiful. And um, then my friends came back and it was like we were kind of in the spell almost and slightly broke the spell. And I felt like I wanted to take this guy with us, you know, and <laughs> they were like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> so, I, you know, and I couldn't, you know, I had to go with them. But it was a really profound moment for me. And I, I felt that we were like God looking at God. That sounds a bit un-Buddhist, I know. But it was like, you know, just through the veils and, and seeing the spirit you know, it's all that sense of a a unified consciousness. And that when we touch that moment, something opening that was, you know, through all the uh, defenses, uh, there was a sense of real real love, a real connection. So the Buddha really encouraged us to, to develop this love, you know, to... It's natural to the heart. It's natural when, so as the, as there's purification, uh, it starts to open. And naturally the heart, even in the face of whatever is going down. You know, as I read from my friend the other night who was attacked, and she, in that moment, something shifted of, of great intensity, and she shifted into this place of enormous depth and grace. It was completely unpremeditated. So this, this is something that's natural to us. This is our natural state, actually, is love, is this compassion, this sense of feeling ourselves not only as this body in this construct but as everything everyone you know it's a it's a it's a it's a sensitivity and a, a feeling into that uh, wholeness and and it's like you know the the different manifestations of all of us of of life and you know when we have a moment of that it's there's, there's a, a there's a great um, beauty in it but it's also something that can be consciously and in buddhist practice is consciously cultivated and it's through this bodhisattva uh, vow or intention it's uh, that we can actually consciously um intend the mind towards in um the avantansaka sutra which is a mahayana sutra which um, holds the ten vows of Samantabhadra Bodhisattva as a practice, which is a whole training template for practice. There's this um, beautiful uh, articulation of this uh, spirit of compassion and service. I will accord with and take care of all these many kinds of beings, providing all manner of services and offerings for them. I will treat them with the same respect I show my own parents and teachers, elders, arahants, and the Buddhas. I will serve them equally without difference. I will be a good physician for the sick and suffering. I will lead those who have lost their way to the right road. I will be a bright light for those in the dark night and cause the poor and destitute to uncover hidden treasures. The Bodhisattva impartially benefits all living beings in this manner. Why is this? If a Bodhisattva accords with living beings, then she accords and makes offerings to all Buddhas. If he can honor and serve living beings, then they honor and serve the Buddhas. If they make living beings happy, they make all Buddhas happy. 
Why is this? It is because all Buddhas take the mind of great compassion as their substance. Because of living beings, they cultivate great compassion. And from great compassion, the Bodhi mind is born. It is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks and the sand of a barren wilderness. When the roots get water, the branches, leaves, flowers and fruits will flourish. The regal Bodhi tree growing in the wilderness of birth and death is the same. All living beings are its roots and all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are its flowers and fruits. By benefiting all beings with the water of great compassion, one can realize the flowers and fruits of the Bodhisattvas and the Buddha's wisdom. Why is this? It is because by benefiting living beings with the water of great compassion, the Bodhisattvas realize supreme awakening. Therefore, awakening belongs to all living beings. Without living beings, no Bodhisattva could achieve awakening. Good people, you should understand these principles in, the, in this way. When the mind is impartial towards all living beings, one can accomplish full and perfect great compassion. So this uh, compassion is always balanced with this equanimity. Just to reflect a little bit more about that, you know, when we talk about compassion, about the cultivation of it, one way we can um, cultivate compassion, uh, particularly if we feel we're, we know we're, we're still we're not Buddhas in it yet, we're still at the baby stage of cultivating it, which in many ways we all are, then we can look at others that have taken the journey, and it is a journey of cultivating um, that. Um, great umbrella, like Ajahn Chah would liken himself as he got very uh, aged. He said he liken himself to a great, like the umbrella of the branches of a great tree. It's just there, like a great tree, giving shade to many beings. Many birds come and twitter and chatter, but the tree is just there. It's great benevolence. So we can look at, there are, there are beings that we know in our lifetime maybe very personally to us, like my, my grandmother was one who's great love. Um, you know, my dog was another one. <laughs> but we can see very personally, or we can see that, that energy operating through others. But we can also think of heroes, you know, like when I think of Madiba, Mr. Mandela, and his life, um, and how he grew into this great compassion. He didn't uh, begin there. You know, he didn't um, at all, but, you know, through this uh, uh, great tribulation of uh, being unjustly imprisoned and oppressed, um, and, you know, for any of us that would have given rise, and I'm sure it did for him, to uh, much anger and hatred and um, vengeance and the desire for revenge. And yet, through those 27 years, and even before that in the struggle, through those 27 years incarcerated in a tiny prison cell, you know, if you see a cell, you know, he was a big man in so many ways. You know, it's, it's, it's like three, it was literally like three, not even four, it's like three of these blocks. That's about the size of his cell that in Robben Island. He spent uh, many, many years there very impoverished food and, you know, abuse and denigration. And, you know, and yet he, he kept working with it. He kept working with it um, and transmuting the process. And then at one point he decided uh, to um, learn the language of his oppressors, uh, Afrikaans' language, because he wanted to really understand better uh, their culture and where they were coming from. And so he ordered these books, uh, poetry and literature, and um, began to familiarize himself with the enemy, I mean, what he considered the enemy. And he talks a lot about that, how he worked with the perceived enemy, and, you know, to the point that um, he became incredibly loved, you know, and when he became the president 
and was released, his attendant was this uh, white Afrikaner woman who was completely and utterly devoted to him like a daughter. And how he was able to unify at the very critical moment in the trajectory and history of South Africa, how he was able to unify um, so many different people with the consciousness that he had spent 27, 30 more years in, through an excruciating situation cultivating yeah, so, um, and so this also challenges us that this growth of compassion isn't just going to come about through wishful thinking. It's going to come about usually through some pretty demanding tests that life will present to us and opportunities both personally and collectively where we're given the opportunity to really explore what are the roots of strife and struggle and how can we in our as we go back into our societies how can we contribute uh, to the lessening of that so as we've been on retreat here there's been um, a lot of disturbance throughout the country because in uh, Ferguson as you know there was the um, the killing of the, the young uh, African-American man and um, the, his, uh, the policeman that was um, indicted for his murder was, um, um, was um, released without charge so um, there's been a lot of unrest you know was, uh, <coughs> bridges in uh, New York blocked and Bart in Oakland stopped and you know all sorts of uh, repercussions this is a A new story, but an old story, as we know. It's an old story. And just looking at this and reflecting on this and realizing, you know, this is, you know, this is important for us in a dominant culture, um, white culture, for us to really uh, pay attention, not to be oblivious to uh, the marginalization that happens uh, particularly for African Americans in this country and in other countries, you know, to really uh, like Mr. Mandela, you know, like uh, there are things um, that we can do, like learn about. You know, we just uh, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, which is a a very beautiful ceremony, but it also has roots in a very difficult history. It's a colonial history that we all have contributed to and shared. Um, benefit from, but also have, um, you know, have a share in its results um, through our family lines, and you know, uh, so to actually educate ourselves, not only about the the more immediate situation of of um, of Ferguson, but the sort of racialized histories that we live within, as part of the systems. I mean, we've been contemplating the internal system of our own minds, but. We, when we go into the world, we contemplate at a systemic level what's happening in our cultures so that we cannot be so blind to see um, you know, how these systems work uh, to oppress. Um, you know, and in turn, like for example, the, those from the black community are locked up in uh, profit prisons at a completely disproportionate rate and for longer sentences um, than, than uh, those uh, crimes, same crimes um, perpetuated by whites. This is a fact, you know, so that we don't just turn a blind eye, like taking Mr. Mandela's example to really explore, like to um, examine in our own lives, our own cultures, our own communities, how the interplay of uh, between poverty and uh, ra- racial inequality, for example, or the marginalization of various groups, immigrants and so on, plays out. Um, and while, you know, for sure, uh, class and race oppression are, are intertwined, uh, it's, it's still the number one predicator of prosperity and access and op- to opportunity is, is through race, race. It still operates very powerfully in our predominantly white cultures. You know, things like what Mr. Mandela did, like to uh, read, to diversify our, our um, 
media or information that we receive so we can begin to open eyes and feel that yes while we might be in a particular racial or gendered body or whatever that actually this is a one consciousness too so we're learning about ourselves in all our manifestations and we're learning about how as we grow in compassion we can lessen because if we don't really understand some of these or see or work through some of the manifestations of the causes that create violence, then, you know, we won't really be able to contribute to the healing more effectively. So the compassion, the training of compassion is to, it's not to judge, it's not to try and fix always, but it's to be able to primarily, the word literally means to resonate with, to feel, to be resonant and sensitive to. Um, what we sometimes don't want to be. In the same with, you know, as we, um, you know, so the forces of, you know, as we see in our personal mind, the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, we start to see that operating uh, collectively. And this is our compassion. We don't, as meditators, just stop at our retreat. You know, this world, there's work to do. Even the Buddha you know, went into the world and he worked with serial killers, he tried to stop wars, he um, challenged a social oppression and um, tried to stop animal sacrifice. I mean, he engaged. He was a, you know, very radical and people tried to kill him because of that. You know, he put his life on the line. So he sets a very a high bar for bringing this dharma into the real world that we're living in, not to use it just to try and prematurely escape into our um, my pink cloud that I have, <laughs> that I do float off one on sometimes. <laughs> so when we come to um, contemplating um, our earth, you know, coming back into... Um, you know, we now live in a way, you know, the, the, we have our personal need for more stuff, you know, like today was Black Friday. Thank God we missed it, you know. Um, and I, it was very upsetting for me to hear that they've now started to have Black Friday in England. Um, I still feel like, you know, sort of being colonized. <laughs> It's karma, I'm sure, you know, we got there first with the colonization story, so. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, uh, and, I mean, no one knows what the hell that is, but they're still rushing to the stores, you know, so. Um, but, uh, you know, the reality is it would take six to eight planets for us all, seven billion of us, to live these lifestyles. And we know now, we know full knowledge, we have full information and knowledge that we cannot continue in our consume consumptions without completely shifting us into a state shift of uh, irreversible, um, you know, uh, crisis and perhaps collapse, you know, even collapse of our civilization and even our collapse of our possibility to survive. So it's a very, we're, we're really uh, in uh, unprecedented territory. So we're training, we're, this is a training that we're going through in this meditation. It's a training to be free, to be joyous, to be present, to be mindful, but it's a training to be real and to meet the conditions of reality. So that, um, you know, it's uh, an interesting moment now that uh, Black Friday, that uh, there's something else happening in the consumerism of our planet, that there were in, say, in Walmart, 4,000 stores in America, and they are, they operate under another brand name in the UK and across the globe, the same energy, but 1,600 of those stores had workers out on strike demanding um, demanding to um, challenging the poverty wages that they're living under. So this is an, an, an interesting phenomena that at the same time that we're consuming unconsciously um, our planetary 
viability, there is something the immunity, the immunity of the you know the, there's resistance and and pushback. This is the the world that we're moving increasingly into, that's imp- impacting all the decisions we make, and impacting um, you know the effects of our lifestyles on the greater world. So that we can also understand that if we've had fairly comfortable, privileged lifestyles and we consume without much mindfulness, as we all do and continue to, and it's very complex, it's hard just to pull the plug, but just to be aware is the beginning, that it impacts other parts of the world that cannot actually do that much about it. You know, for example, northern Africa and through, through, through Africa is the most susceptible to changes in you know, extreme uh, weather patterns that are being activated more and more frequently, like the uh, typhoon high end that went through the Philippines this time last year and killed thousands and displaced millions, and two million still displaced. This is becoming an increasingly frequent occurrence so and or in um, in many different places like Syria it's interesting that just just before it imploded into um, into the civil conflict it is the most dreadful um, implosion and war that uh, 80% of its fertile land turned to desert because of drought and 60% of their cattle died and in that the the um minister of agriculture said he he didn't know what he it was beyond his understanding what they can do and so the the farmers marched into the city to to uh, to confront the government and that in a way began the trigger for the meltdown so what we see underneath these you know how the ever they're shaped for whatever political purposes, um, through the mainstream media, underneath we're seeing the impact of the uh, of the lack of resources, and increasing instability. And this is not something that we are not going to be able to walk away from. So to just you know to to meet that which is increasingly intense, increasingly activating, and can activate those survival patterns where we grab our square inch, that's one way we can respond. But to meet it with uh, compassion, with wisdom, is really the optimum way. You know, so or the or similarly the energy of violence and hatred. So all of these internal energies we've been contemplating. So all the it, this is all the projection of the mind. A lot of this, a human mind, without not guided. You know the technologies that we have are so sophisticated now, but they're not guided. We haven't. We are not meeting the level of technological brilliance of this manas vinyana, this mind that can go out and discriminate and discern and differentiate and put a scapel to the world and cut down right through the last atom, we haven't actually reached that level of technological power with the power of wisdom and compassion to guide it. Yeah, so this is our work to really quicken as, as, you know, as much as, the, you know, as much as there's this beautiful teaching in uh, Tibetan is like the greater the suffering, the greater the blaze of awakening. <laughs> The greater the intensity, the greater the potential you know, that, that there is, the need, the need for, for awakening. So this, you know, as in the projection of greed, the consuming or the violence through the projection of hatred you know, through wars and um, it's something that we know about too, you know, that we... Uh, um, I was just... Um, I would like to read you because I think <clears throat> the idea that um, that we will solve our problems through violence is a redundant idea. I think we can actually evolve beyond that, and it has such repercussions. It's such a we think it will solve the problem, and yet it creates so many more problems, and some we haven't even you know anticipated. 
This is a, a, a note from an Iraq veteran, Daniel Somers. It's a suicide note. My body has become nothing but a cage, a source of pain and constant problems. The illness I have has caused me pain that not even the strongest medicines could dull, and there is no cure. All day, every day, a screaming agony in every nerve ending in my body, and it is nothing short of torture. My mind is a wasteland, filled with visions of incredible horror, unceasing depression and crippling anxiety, even with all the medications that doctors dare give. Simple things that everyone else takes for granted are nearly impossible for me. I cannot laugh or cry. I can barely leave the house. I derive no pleasure from any activity. Everything simply comes down to passing time until I can sleep again. That was the, what he left just the, before he took his life. So there's more than like 8,000. We don't even know the full number because not all the states record and of course in those other countries involved over 8,000 um, suicides a year from just Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a hidden. And it's to understand that, as the Buddha said, violence or hatred is never overcome by hatred. Never. <laughs> Only through love. Only through love can we quell the force of hatred. You know, so this... Uh, this um, yeah, you might think we have a righteous war or a righteous... Uh, there's a righteous killing, but it it always has, it always breeds more violence and comes back to us or, or to our families or to our home. Or in the force of delusion, you know, that we, you know, that we've been contemplating confusion and delusion. We can see that operating systemically as this idea that we own, th- we own everything. We own the planet. We own right down to the last patent seed. It's ours to manipulate and to control and to own and exploit and, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's sort of creating Frankenstein's. <laughs> We don't know, again, the wisdom and compassion isn't there. I saw um, the other day on, the, on YouTube, uh, I follow a lot of things that's happening uh, to animals particularly because they're so vulnerable in our system, in our machinery, and so exploited. Um, that these, uh, they're genetically now making cows with like these huge wadges of muscle, like three times to the point they can hardly walk just for more meat. You know, and it's like, oh my God, what are, what are we doing? How did we get so off track? How do we do what we're doing without feeling? How did we lose our hearts? How did we lose our hearts and our sensitivity and our connection and our soul? And in a way, this practice of, the, of cultivating compassion is the practice of reclamation. It's a, it's the, it's the, um, it's the slow, often, and sometimes painful, and challenging practice of what is brought to us to not act out of to to make the choice. Whatever comes to us, to not act out of violence, to try and, you know, calm our greed and to become more more uh, happy with simpler things like on this retreat you know how many of you experience the beauty and contentment of just you know i see some of you like spacing out looking at a tree or and i'm looking like what are they looking at is it like something <laughs> it's like someone's looking at us like, there must be something that's like because i'm not quite in the um, state you are i'm sort of more like in that <laughs> keeping the retreat together state but <laughs> I was like, oh they're just looking <laughs> and clearly enjoying just in you know enjoying enjoying and uh, you know we so lose touch with that beauty that childlike ability to enjoy uh, the natural beauty around us and so this 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 you know the the, the path of compassion involves suffering but the path of joy and the path of beauty and the path of equanimity are those qualities that are innate to us too that we also must consciously cultivate to help balance and to bring us 
uh, uplift and, and, and to give us traction for the length of the journey and to keep us light in, in the midst of the fire of purification, whether it's personal or collective, because we are, in a way, kind of, as someone has said, in the dark night of the species almost, we are in a very difficult period of challenge. But we should still not succumb to despair, even though we might feel that. I'm sure many, many times Mr. Mandela must have felt despair or felt suicidal. And yet he kept trusting, you know, he kept trusting to be uh, a great faith, to keep trusting in the innate goodness and beauty, even in those that he were oppressing him, that underneath everything and everyone there is beauty and grace and goodness. There's this beautiful... um, moment when uh, in the Lord of the Rings when uh, um, Frodo and Sam are taking the the ring back to throw it into the fires of Mordor and they're getting nearer and nearer and nearer and as you know if you've seen that if you haven't seen that trilogy I really recommend it's such a great metaphor for our times and as they get nearer and nearer to Mordor and they're getting crazier and it's getting more difficult and Gollum is doing all the manipulations and and Frodo just collapses and he says, I can't do it. It's just too difficult. I can't do it. And I, 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 you know, he wants to give up. So it's that moment where he wants to give up. And then Sam, who's is very loyal, he kind of represents that piece of the human heart that's just very good, very loyal. He, he goes to, um, he goes to, uh, to Frodo and says, no, 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 you can't give up. You can't, we've got to keep going. And Frodo quite reasonably says, well, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> And he says, because there's goodness here and we must fight for it. There is goodness here. We must keep a flame for it. We must keep that alight in our own hearts and in this world. Whatever is going down, because that goodness will prevail. It always has and it always will. Because it's a, it's a more conscious force. However dark the night becomes. Uh, and to you know to this, uh, as we contemplate that, we can know we can trust that underneath or beyond at the depth of our heart is the unshakability of truth of the Dharma. This is the place of equanimity. It's the place where everything rests. You know, all that has come to pass has come to pass to be as it is now because all of all the causes that have gone before. And so this is how it is. It's not this is how it is and therefore I ignore it. It's this is how it is and I embrace it. You know, fearlessly, even though I'm frightened. You know, even though my heart trembles in the face of whatever is present for us. And if we don't know that for ourselves, we can remember the words of a great, another great saint, realized being, Ananda Mahima. It was an extraordinary realized being in India, contemporary, passed over now, meaning her body has gone, but I'm sure these beings, they radiate still. She was one of these beings that came in awakened. And she would go into these samadhis that would last for days. And she would say to her disciples, you better be, take care of this body because when I'm in this state, I don't know the difference between fire and water. You know. And just, you, know, you just see her, if you see her image or picture, she just radiates this profound... She's actually living in that depth of truth, the immovable, mysterious timeless heart. So there was a, um, a time that uh, Yog- um, Yogananda, who was of course a great um, initiator here in America, he, in LA, and uh, he brought uh, the Dharma here in, in his way. And uh, But it was a difficult journey. I don't know if you saw just nearby, they showing the film in San Rafael of Yogananda's life. I don't know, it's probably not showing, but it's really worth seeing because it's, it's lovely to go back to these these beings that help bring 
you know, they were part of what we're doing now. They're, the, they're our ancestors. They're in the lineage. So at a certain point, it got very difficult for him, as it does, <laughs> trying to awaken um, the disciples here. And so he went back to India to, for solace and to try and recuperate. And he went to, uh, to visit. Someone said, you must go visit Ananda Maimar. Um, she's this great saint. And so he did. And he was completely struck by her presence. And he said to her, he said, tell me. Tell me something of your life. And she said, um, there's little to tell. My consciousness has never identified with this temporary body. Before I came on earth, I was the same. As a girl and as I grew up, I was the same. As this body was married, I was the same. And in front of you now, I am the same. Ever after, though the dance of creation changes around me in the halls of eternity, I shall be the same. So this is, this is us, the same. You know, love, hate, desire, fear, moments of awakening, moments of despair. It's just here, just the same. The world created, the world Shiva-like destroyed. <laughs> Consciousness is the same. I'm moving, not going anywhere. Present. And this, this truth, you know, through this practice we're doing, we're awakening into, as the Dalai Lama said, and another great one who demonstrates wisdom and compassion in the world, he said, don't be, uh, don't, don't worry so much about your own journey, actually. <laughs> A lot of what we're doing is for future generations. You know, we get so obsessed, am I going to be enlightened? Yeah, you know, sometime. <laughs> let's not worry about it, you know, let's just enjoy it, enjoy it, enjoy it, you know. What, a, what an amazing thing to be here now. You know, what an amazing thing for us to be here at this time and to bring what we can from our practice, from our mindfulness, from the love that we have from our service and from our trials and tribulations which give us the, the food for our growth to offer that not just for ourselves not even just for those here now on this earth but for those to come our children and grandchildren may they too benefit from a life that has sustenance and nourishment and joy and beauty. So may we dedicate our practice tonight for this earth and for those beings to come after us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.